Welcome to the fifth series of the Global Careers Calls podcast, hosted by Ray Roberts, a careers consultant at the University of London. In this exciting series, we explore the fascinating world of leadership and management. Join us as Ray interviews accomplished alumni who have emerged as leaders, sharing their personal experiences in managing people and taking on significant responsibilities across different sectors and countries. In this episode, Ray will host Elizabeth Karim, former governor of Montserrat diplomat and senior director of international development programs. Elizabeth, who has been awarded an MSc in public policy and management from SOAS, will be talking about her professional growth from being a social development advisor to governor of British Overseas Territory. She will examine the skills that have been fundamental during her leadership roles. We hope you enjoy this call. Here I am in the UK on a call all the way to Canada with Elizabeth Carrier this morning. Welcome, Elizabeth. Maybe you'd like to start us off by telling a little bit about who you are. My name is Elizabeth Carrier, and person who has perhaps paused a career of working for 25 years overseas in the development field. I also hold a MSc from University of London in public policy and management, which I did as a distance learner. I'm Canadian, as you can probably tell from my accent, but I'm also British. Um, And I'm currently living in a place called Gambier Island, which is a sort of a semi-rural or maybe more rural than urban island off the coast of British Columbia, which is sort of wilderness, but at the same time, a fairly comfortable and accessible wilderness. So that's, that's where I am. I'm also currently a senior fellow at uh, the University of Cambridge Centre for Resilience and Sustainable Development, which is a fascinating area to work in. And I'm, I'm focusing right now on small island developing states. It's such a pleasure to have you as a guest on this podcast today. And I'm always amazed that I can learn about a new location that I don't necessarily even know about, as well as new career areas. It's one of the the great joys about hosting these podcasts. And what I'd be interested to kind of start us off maybe is a bit of a a perspective on what are some of the sort of leadership roles that you've had over the years? Sure. Well, I've started, I guess, my leadership roles in Canada with government, provincial government in Manitoba, starting off establishing a branch to look after the settlement of refugees, though at that time it was largely Vietnamese refugees. I think people remember them, both people movement, and also a new role for provinces in immigration policy through the dual role in the constitution between provinces and Canada being a confederation. So I I started off there And I was also at the same time attending university. I was doing a master's in anthropology, social anthropology. And I think one thing that I had to learn several times before I finally really got the message, perhaps I never did get the message, is that it's very, very difficult doing a full-time demanding job at the same time as studying. But 
I have to say that it's a real advantage in some ways to be studying at the same time as doing work because you're always reflecting back and forth between theory and action, and there's always something relevant. So I did that job for quite a few years and set up the branch and then moved to more senior roles in the government in Manitoba, ending up as the Assistant Deputy Minister of Culture and Heritage, which was a wide-ranging role with responsibility for culture, which was major cultural institutions like the opera and the theater and so on, but also fostering culture and multiculturalism, which was a strong Canadian uh, policy at that time, and also um, heritage. So I did that job for a few years, and the fate of civil servants, at least in those days, was that when the government changed, sometimes you were left high and dry. And that was a very interesting experience because it prompted me to make a major shift in the way I looked at my career and what I was doing because I had this sort of promising senior government role. So I, I went to British Columbia and set myself up as a, as a consultant in sort of social justice, organizational development, because I worked so much in these areas and I was quite dedicated to the areas of social justice and also enrolled in a PhD in adult education, doing a sort of a sociology type study about anti-racism education. And that was very relevant at the time for my work, as well as socially for me, and, and, and it was a real eye-opener to how power is wielded geopolitically, historically, and through the education, focusing particularly on adult education and anti-racism education. So then I moved again, having said that I would never go back to government work, and moved to the Department of Women's Equality and became an executive director for policy and planning and did that for a couple of years. But I had this anchoring, you know, after my studies and my, my learning through my work to work overseas. And that opportunity came up in the mid-90s when I was a consultant for a Canadian project on gender in Indonesia with the government of Indonesia. And that was really fascinating because then... Having worked in government in Canada and then beginning my career of working internationally with host governments, I think that's where I did an awful lot of learning, not only of working with governments and working with other international development organizations, such as the World Bank, bilaterals and the IMF and so on, but also how to work with host governments and with colleagues who had a very different view of how to work in government. And that I think that was a really good introduction. Moved on from that, but still in Indonesia, to taking a role with DFID, which was the Department of International Development, which is now extinct, as you probably know. It went through a lot of changes, as did the whole tone of development during the time, the 25 years or so, that I worked with development. And it really important to keep that in perspective. So I moved, starting as a social development advisor, moved into supervisory management roles, leadership roles, 
in various countries. So I was sort of zigging back and forth across the globe from Indonesia to, I think, the Caribbean, to Caribbean to Bangladesh, and Bangladesh back to the Caribbean, from there to Africa, a couple of postings in Africa. And then I'm skipping over this, but I have to say that each one of those those postings and those sets of experiences like a jewel in my life, not just my career. Um, during that time as well, of course, I was studying. So I, I had to abandon my PhD, but I decided to take the MSc in public policy and management at SOAS through the distance learning, which was really an interesting thing because you did all that work online. Masses of paper, so you got all that sent to you. A bit of it was on disks, but it was mainly paper. And then sitting examinations in different countries, because I was doing this over a period of several years, in the British council offices and local schools or universities and so on, and sitting three-hour handwritten exams, if you can imagine. I mean, it does sound... No, we don't do that anymore, but that was very real. And that was, it was like that. So, you know, I found myself either on, on work or in holidays in countries trying to find an internet cafe to submit assignments online and so on. At least we had that. So, so that career of 25 years of moving from place to place and very, very different experiences mostly in leadership roles and increasingly important or senior leadership roles was a really, really fascinating and challenging. And, you know, if you look at my CV and you see that, you know, I've been country director for or representative for DFID in some quite significant places where some quite significant things were happening, such as coups and civil wars and so on. And being evacuated and all that kind of thing. So, you know, there was a certain amount of challenge and danger to that. And real learning, you know, as a leader and as a manager of how to cope with that and how to ensure the well-being and the safety of staff and the integrity of the offices and what we were doing and a strong, strong diplomatic role as well. It's not just managing projects or programs. It had been a very strong diplomatic role. For example, in Bangladesh, when there was a soft coup, I worked very, very closely with the high commissioner, with the government, directly with the government. And that really is true pretty much in all the roles, in South Sudan in particular, because of the strong, prominent role that the UK played in diplomacy, along with Norway and the United States. And then I went after that to work for the FCO, the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, which is the overseer, if you like, or the center point for governors who are heading up the overseas territory. Now, governorship is a very interesting role. It's not per se a development role. But we had a lot to do with development and differed in the case of Montserrat because it had been devastated in 1994. I was there in 2015, 2018, by eruption, a volcanic eruption. And it had 
shifted everything and decimated the population and so on. So they were receiving development aid. So there was that dual focus. But governorship, you're actually the queen's representative and you are the head of state. You're not the head of government because there's an elected premier. So you're, you're basically the boss, right? Of, of a country or in this case, a small island. And that was a really, really interesting process because I was in charge of everything from soup to nuts, right? I'd chair cabinet meetings. I was in charge of security. So that meant the police and the fire and the prisons. And I was in charge of the financial services and the civil service. So in some ways, I would say that was the kind of pinnacle of my career. But I would also say that, for example, being in sub-Sudan at a time when civil war broke up, of having a portfolio of maybe 50 million pounds, mostly in development, and then being evacuated, which was dramatic in itself. That's I, that I was awarded the OBE for that, for leadership in helping with that effort. And then being, you know, sort of operating at a distance and then reestablishing our operations in a very different way. 200 million pounds, 80% humanitarian, you know, in a very difficult political situation and playing a very, very prominent role, even as the head of DFID with the government and with the the ambassador at that time. So that was fascinating. And I would say in some ways that was challenging and rewarding in a way that can barely describe from day-to-day relationships with the international community, leadership in, in that sense, which we don't often think about. Um, and then also, I want to say of huge value and meaningfulness in my career is taking the role of the head of a small development office for an international NGO, which was in dire straits and falling apart and financially as well as morale, as well as operationally, and bringing people together again, instilling a sense of team teamwork confidence, trust, and getting them set to to go forward uh, as a team. So that kind of thing is very meaningful as well. So I just want to point out, I think, by touching on those things, just how varied and just how integral to countries, often countries' welfare as well as people's welfare that kind of role in development can be when you're working for government. Now, you're not as influential when you're working for an NGO, and that's something important to learn, right? You have a different kind of influence. You know, you're you're influencing around methodologies, around community interaction, around the cutting edge of development and, and gender and consultation and microfinance and things like that, which is also something that you don't necessarily experience as much being head of the government office because you're not as on the ground, you know, and with the people as you are in the work with NGOs. So I wanted to point out just how varied. And it's really up to you 
I think, I mean, you, you have a role, it's defined, but you also carve out for yourself and the role that you're carrying, your location, your position, you know, in that international community, how you play your role, how your institution plays that role of power, how you yourself need to continuously question, especially if you're in a position of leadership, of how you are imprinting. So just be aware that you're working for a particular kind of system and enterprise, which has a politicality that you should be aware of and set yourself right with. Also to look at the history of development, you know, the role that it's played, why it's constructed the way it is. And it's really important as a leader or as a player in it to be aware of and to be constantly critiquing or questioning or interrogating your actions. And the people that you'll be working with internationally, I'm speaking now to the students, I think, people that you'll be working with internationally, a lot of them will be elite if you're working with government. A lot of them will be imposing some of those power structures on their own people. In fact, in quite egregious ways, like if you think about South Sudan and warlords and, you know, all that sort of thing, and autocratic governments that you may be working with, you have to develop skills and a critique, if you like, that enables you to do that work, but do it with integrity, I would say. I really just want to say it's such an honor to get to speak to someone who's experienced so many unique contexts and encounters and and had different roles across different types of organizations and different countries around the world and has such a reflective and aware perspective in the way that you do. And I think that really links with a lot of the conversation that I'm having with students at at the moment around the importance of emotional intelligence, as well as resilience in how you engage with your career. And I guess a question that's been burning on my lips as I've been hearing you speak is, so how do you cope with this? You know, what are your strategies? And maybe this bridges onto what is leadership? What is management? And how do you actually manage that? You know, you've led in incredibly challenging contexts and you've done an amazing job and you've been rewarded for that and recognized for that. But what are your strategies? Because I, I know I talk to our students that are studying refugee protection and and global environment, and they're very aware that they're going into a very important and a very emotionally taxing career journey. And how have you navigated that? Well, I think, first of all, it's really important to accept the emotionality of that as part of it. I think emotion, um, whether it's your drive or your passion or whatever, is a very important part of the job. You have to believe in something. Hopefully, you know, I mean, all of you, all of us will determine what that group of things is that we believe in. But you really have to have a framework, a values framework, a personal values framework. Hopefully that resonates with your organizational framework. I think it mostly does because values are usually expressed in very positive and general ways. But there are times where it's, it's going to be difficult and emotional as well is that you don't agree necessarily with the actions that are being taken or the way things are being done. 
or what's being said or the way the, the diplomatic role that you're in the case of a bilateral or even a multilateral, you know, like the World Bank and, and or some of the regional banks. You don't necessarily agree with that. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with that in a way that you are engaged, that you realize that you are employed to carry out certain activities and sets of programs and funding or whatever, there are always parts of that, you know, that you're going to have difficulty with. You might have difficulty with ministers, for example. You certainly are going to have difficulties in terms of moral issues or power issues with some of the governments that you're working with, or even the international partners that you're working with. So I think it's very important to have some kind of a framework where you understand where you're coming from and where you can place some of these things. But at the same time, I don't think that moral rigidity is a particularly useful tool. You know, you really have to understand that people come from very different perspectives and their judgments about morality. I mean, there are certain parameters that to me are not negotiable, but they have a very different approach to that, very different experiences that lead them to that. So you've got these kind of moral, ethical, probably is a better word, for example, gender equality, for example, justice and aspects of justice, our definition of justice, for example, inclusiveness and so on. So your own value structure is very important in what you understand. So I would say that's a really, really important thing. And that also is not just about dealing with the governments or the organization, but also staff, the people that you're working with, and also the so-called beneficiaries of what you're doing. What is your approach to that? And I'd say humility is a really important part of that. You know, being able to listen and see, you know, where other people are coming from without rushing to some kind of judgment which is much more expedient because then you can get on with things, right? But things are rarely cut and dried. You know, they they can be quite ambiguous. But particularly working with staff, you will be working largely in development offices with local staff. You probably won't have the language or much of the language. And they will have very different attitudes about hierarchy and, you know, relationships. There may be even internal difficulties that are related to different community that will cause conflict. But human beings, the basic thing is in an organizational setting, need to feel mutual trust. They need to feel that they can trust, especially their leader, but, you know, better still each other. You know, I've heard a definition that says teams aren't just a group of people working towards a common goal. It's a group of people who trust each other. So trust is a very important part of it. And openness. It's like, deal with what you're seeing, not a, okay, well, I expect that people here will react that way. Keep in mind that people are people and there's a lot of variety. But also trust, well-being of staff. This will come up a lot. Well-being of staff in terms of Human resources, safeguarding issues, these are really, really important issues that have come to the fore, thank goodness, lately in, in management or leadership. In an environment, for example, where 
the dominant culture or cultures may not agree, you know, respect for diversities and a whole lot of other things. So managing that with your staff is very important, but at the same time, ensuring that your staff understand that when you're working for a certain organization, that organization's values and frameworks and so on, if you don't fit with that, then you may have to admit that you don't fit with the organization. That's why I think values, having a set of values is very important in organizations and in these kind of settings, because you get people to actually commit to the values. And some of the human resources issues that you deal with, whether it's discipline or some sort of conflict, you go back to the values and you go back to the idea that people need to commit to those values, which are organizational values, but they're also cultural to some extent too. So that's another thing that I would I would say is an important part of those roles and an important part of leadership. The other thing is vision and inspiring people. And that's also very important. And it's also very important that although it's the responsibility of a leader to kind of develop a vision and inspire people to work in it or towards it, it's also important that that vision is co-created, that you have a vision that makes sense to people and that people can get on board with and that people feel that they've had some input to in the creation of it. Another thing is I would say that sometimes the role of manager and leader sort of overlap a lot because you you have to understand management often in these situations to be a good leader as well. You have to know how to, you know, manage finances, control budgets, evaluate programs, and how to roll them out, project cycles and all that sort of thing. But you also have to be able to see them as part of a bigger whole and help people to see that through strategy building, through various other means. It's not always necessary to go through some sort of formal strategy building. You can do refresh and that sort of thing to keep reminding people and to revise where you thought you were going when things have changed. So Adaptability, I guess, in a nutshell, is what a lot of that is about. People focus, people skills, strategic thinking and vision, touched on inclusiveness. I hope I've given that message. Incredibly important. And I mentioned humility. You have to be able to persuade and influence, whether it's your team, your management your management structure or the government in some circumstances, you have to be able to represent your organization. If you're in a leadership position, you have to be able to communicate, you have to be able to know how to beat the press and, you know, what to say and what not to say. It's so easy to make mistakes and all politicians are very aware of that. You have to be able to do briefing and analysis. This is very important. You, you know, there are people above you who have to make decisions within different contexts and you have to be able to understand that and do an analysis and briefing that is useful to them. You have to be able to take more than one perspective at one, particularly as you move from country to country, <laughs> but also within the geographical setting that you're in. You have to understand the geopolitics. All those countries are affected by geopolitics, the writ large or regional, or within their own country, and and so on. 
you know, that whole thing about stakeholder analysis and the power, power analysis and that sort of thing. Yes. And you have to have integrity. You have to be reliable. You have to stick with your word. You have to have a set of values that people know you for and can count on you for. And you have to be focused on people's welfare, whoever those people might be, your staff or the people who are participating in in the programs and projects. And somehow in being all of that, you have to also look after yourself in order to be all of that for all of those people and and all of those stakeholders. Well, yeah, you're quite right. I didn't mention all of that because you've got to have fun too, you know, and you've got to have social connections. And I had book clubs that I belonged to and met socially, sort of socially, but professionally with the international community, you have to get out and dance <laughs> sometimes if it's appropriate. Certainly in Africa, it is. And for some people, you have to study while you're doing that and write exams and uh, write papers and so on. Yes, it, it does give you the opportunity to be a full person, I think, those kind of jobs. Well, you've given us such incredible insight into what it might look like on the ground, the different kind of levels, the different roles, the the very complex nuance of just how many skills that you need to be using at, at every moment, really, and how much is at stake with it. And I have no doubt that our students listening will be inspired and taking on board those tips. I know you're at the beginning of a working day there, I think. So Thank you so much for fitting in this conversation and sharing so much of your experience with our students. Thank you, Ray. This was the fifth season of the Global Careers Calls podcast brought to you by the University of London Career Service. All links and resources are in the show notes. This episode was presented by Ray Roberts, edited by Bushri Yunu, and introduced by me, Abby Underwood. If you want to hear more inspiring stories from our global graduate cohort, subscribe to be the first to know when we release a new episode. You can find our episodes on your favourite streaming platforms, including Spotify, Amazon, Apple Podcasts and many more. Thank you for listening and join us next time for a new Global Careers Call.